Let's turn on our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get one into your hands, and that way you can hear the Word of God taught, but then also read the passage that it's being taught from, and which has an even greater impact upon our lives. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord and take it home and enjoy it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man, that is Adam, came death, by man, that is Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that it's a living word. Thank you that we never turn to it except that your Holy Spirit is eager to give us deeper revelation and deeper understanding of you. Thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, Lord, in our lives and in this world. We pray that you give us just a sweet and very, very personal time in your word today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This last Monday, I attended the memorial service of a mother of a friend and attended that service right here in this room. And as I sat in that service, I was impacted once again, as I uh, so often am in those kind of environments, just impacted by how tragic and how far-reaching the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden are. That sin that introduced that sin and, and death into the human condition, into human history. Their sin in that garden is the explanation for the existence of death all around us, the suffering that so often people experience in accompanied with death. And then there's also the pain and the sorrow that death brings to the surviving family members and to friends and to loved ones. And when you sit in a room and all of that is being explained to you and all of that is before your eyes and you're seeing um, faces to all of that, it's very, very impactful. And then to sit there and to realize that that service that we were having in this room on that Monday was being repeated that day all over this city in multiple locations. I, there's a website that you can turn to and, and visit uh, online where it'll pull up a giant map of Modesto and it'll show you all the crimes that have been committed in Modesto in like the last month. And so there's this big picture of the city and they have these different icons for the various different crimes. And then at the address where each of these crimes were committed, there is that icon posted there. And when it comes up, sometimes you can be alarmed at 
uh, just how much of that is going on in, in the community. And I wonder if they had a website that showed the city of Modesto and marked in red every home that has been affected by death in the last month, how red would that, that map be? The home of those who have died or the homes of loved ones and family members and friends of those that are watching someone approach death very, very near or those that are affected by uh, that, the, the death of someone who has recently died. And I think that if we had such a map, the entire city map would light up like a Christmas tree. I think we'd be shocked at how close death comes to so many on a weekly and monthly basis just in our community and to realize that that is replayed in every single city and every single village in this whole wide world. What is true of this city is true of the whole world. I'll tell you, it's no wonder that the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes wrote, it's better to go to the house of mourning, that is a funeral, than to the house of feasting. For that's the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better, and the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. We could ask ourselves, how in the world could uh, sorrow ever be greater than laughter? Or how in the world could attending a funeral ever be better than attending a party or attending a feast? And it is because it forces us to think about a subject that we would rather not think about, and that is the subject of death. It's very significant that the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes declared, and the living will take it to heart. In other words, life isn't just to be spent in uh, seeking pleasure and, and going to parties and eating and having fun, all of these things. It is vital that every single person give some consideration to the subject of death while we're still alive, while we have something to do about that. And so there must come a time in every person's life when we stop and we give consideration to the following questions. Why does death exist? What is its origin in this world? Where did it come from? And then, is there an answer for death? Is there a solution, an antidote? Is there a victory in the face of death? And then third, how can I make that antidote or that victory mine in preparation for what is the inevitable approach of death in all of our lives and those three questions are addressed in these three verses that we've read by the Apostle Paul, and they're answered. Question number one, why does death exist? Where did it come from? What's its origin? You notice in verse 21 that the Holy Spirit declares, by man came death. Now, that tells a, a, it tells us a lot of things. But one very, very important thing that it tells us is that death did not have its origin in God. 
Death was not introduced into the human history and human condition by God. It has its origin in man. In fact, God never intended mankind to ever know or ever to experience death. The existence of death in the human condition, it breaks the heart of God as much as it breaks our hearts. You're in a memorial service and you are maybe weeping yourself or watching the broken hearts that are in that room as they face the loss that they're facing. And you realize it's really something, I think, humbling to realize that God is as brokenhearted in that scene as any husband or any wife or any mother, father, son, or daughter could ever be. The shortest verse in the entire Bible is made up of two words. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 35. And the two words are, Jesus wept. And that was recorded concerning Jesus at the scene of a death, the death of a very good friend by the name of Lazarus, who had died and been put in the grave four days earlier. And as Jesus arrives on the scene, that scene of of death, there he is in that graveyard. He begins to weep as he's surrounded by all of the weeping family members of, of Lazarus and all of his friends dealing with their loss. And when Jesus wept, he didn't weep for Lazarus. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus in just a few moments. Jesus wept over the very existence of death in the human condition, this cruel, terrible enemy called death. And he wept because he knew that when God created man, it was never intended that we would ever experience death or the death of a loved one, but that it was introduced into human history through the fall or the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God never intended a single person to that they would ever feel what we feel at the loss of a loved one. And as Jesus looked at all of that weeping, all of that brokenheartedness and mourning over the loss, his mind was filled with the knowledge God never intended this. And so he began to weep as well. That's his heart toward us. In the face of what he knows each of us faces in our lifetimes. Death was not introduced into the human condition by God but by virtue of Adam and Eve's sin and that ancient Garden of Eden. Well, someone may sit in a room like this and listen to somebody like me uh, make those statements, and they might even protest over what it is that I'm declaring. Someone might sit here today and say, I don't believe in the Garden of Eden. I don't even believe in Adam and Eve. I think it's all a fairy tale. I think it's all mythology. I'm only here because somebody's going to buy me breakfast at Mimi's afterwards. But I think all of you people are in a desperate state and straight. How can I know that the Bible's record of the fall of man is true? What proof is there that I'm a descendant of Adam and Eve and that I'm fallen as the Bible teaches? I'll give you one word. Death. Death. Because you die. 
God doesn't go into some big, long explanation there in verse 22, some detailed hour upon hour until our eyes glaze with some kind of a philosophical explanation for death or whatever it is. He just encapsulates it, makes it as plain as can be. In Adam all die. And death reveals every single one of us to be a descendant of that ancient Adam and it ties each of us to that ancient Garden of Eden. There is a rope that is around my ankle and your ankle as well that goes through thousands of years of history and that rope is pinned down in the Garden of Eden. We're all connected to that garden and to that fall. Paul wrote to the... Romans, and he said, therefore, just as through one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. What is your explanation for death? What is your explanation for the existence of death? Not what happens when we die, not what happens after we die, but what is your explanation for the existence of death in human history, and in the human condition. If my search on Google, posing what I think is a very simple question, what is the atheist's explanation for the origin of death, and then reading page after page after page and clicking on page after page after page after page and going through all of these pages, one after the other after the other, in which... Not only is the question not answered, the question isn't even asked. It seems as if that community, in that community, it's simply accepted as a fact with virtually no curiosity concerning its origin or an attempt to discover its origin. And I would contend there's no greater explanation for the world that we live in and no greater explanation certainly for the existence of death than the one that is given to us in the first three chapters of this book that we have on our laps and that is Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. The record of the creation of man in the image of God and then man's fall from that original creation including the introduction of death into human history. And I cannot tell you how important That revelation from God's Word is to me. I am thankful that the God that I serve is not afraid of any question we will pose to Him. He's not afraid of great questions. He's not afraid of raising the greatest of questions that we wouldn't think to raise ourselves. He's not afraid of a single question any of us would bring to Him. And He has, and He supplies answers for all of them. And in fact, God himself declares in his word that no God in anybody's life, whatever a person calls God or whatever is the master passion of their life, every, the, the Bible assumes that there are no, practically, there are nothing called an atheist. We are all worshipers in life. And, and so practically speaking, we can do a lot of things inside of our head. But practically speaking, there are no atheists. We all worship. 
And who and what we worship is the master passion of our life. What gets us out of bed in the morning? Where our time goes? What is our greatest focus? That can be some false god. It can be the god of the Bible. It can be self. It can be pleasure. It can be sin. It can be food. It can be all kinds of things. But everyone worships. And everyone has a god. And in fact, God not only speaks of of the fact that all of us are worshipers of God, and that's an assumed fact, but the Bible teaches further that we are becoming like the God that we serve and the God that we worship. That's a different sermon. God himself declares that no God or no master passion, whether it's a person, place, thing, self, philosophy, or some whatever it might be, is worthy of being followed or worshipped if it cannot give an explanation for the origin and the existence of death. It's fascinating to me when I read philosophy and I study uh, religious systems, how uh, vocal they become about death, how readily they are to wax eloquent about what happens after a person dies because there's no risk in doing that because after all if at death you discover them to have been wrong it's too late to do anything about it you can't come back and shout this whole religious system is completely bogus these people are crazy it was nothing like what they would said it would be you have no voice anymore because at that particular point it's too late we're dead To follow any religion or philosophy's teaching on death or the afterlife, which does not first give you a verifiable explanation for the origin of death, is asking you to live by blind faith concerning the most important questions that you will ask in life. If a philosophy or religion, including atheism, cannot supply me with a verifiable explanation for the origin of death, which I can then put to a test, then why in the world would I believe their speculations on death and what happens after death? God put it this way in speaking through the prophet Isaiah when the children of Israel were following all kinds of false gods rather than the God of the Bible. And God declared on them to bring all of their idols together. And he said to them, to the, to the people with their idols, present your case, Isaiah chapter 41, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, says the king of Jacob. And then speaking of the idols, he said, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. And the idea is before it happens. Let them show us the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us the things to come. It's kind of like a minimum requirement for something uh, wanting to claim itself to be God or get into the God class. God says, all right, I'll give you just a two-part test that they ought to be able to pass. And that is, any God that is worth their salt is going to be able to tell us the future with 100% accuracy. And all of us would look at that and say, yes, I mean, that a, a God ought to be able to do that. But significantly, 
God doesn't stop there. His other requirement is that any God ought to be able to tell us the former things with 100% accuracy. Ought to be able to answer the questions of why are we here? How did we get here? Why does death exist? What is its origin? Why is man so goofed up? And why is the world in the mess that it's in? And any God that desires to be worshipped as God ought to not only be able to speak of the future with absolute accuracy, but to give us an accurate account of our origin and of our past. In addition to death, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 of another evidence that each of us possesses that witnesses to the truthfulness of the biblical account of creation and the fall of man there in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And it is the witness of conscience. The Bible teaches that in this world that every single one of us born into the world is born with a conscience. We have an innate, God-given sense of right and of wrong. And we have with that conscience concerning right and wrong also the realization that we ought always to do what is right and we should never do what is wrong. You travel anywhere in the world, any nation, any language, any race, any culture, and you will discover that is universal in humanity. We have a conscience and that all over the world the same things are considered wrong by virtue of conscience and the same things are considered right by virtue of conscience. Lying is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. Cheating is always wrong. Adultery is always wrong. And conversely, not cheating or stealing or lying or committing adultery and you finish out whatever list is always right. Now here's the fascinating thing about man's conscience. Fascinating thing about this conscience that we have is that our conscience is higher than our actual practice. No one lives up to the standard of their conscience. We all live below the standard of our conscience that is inside of us. And what that reveals to us, the Apostle Paul said, is that our conscience cannot have its origin in us because it's higher than us. So it must have its origin in God who is higher than us, and thus our conscience testifies to the facts that we have been created by someone who is greater than us and that we have all fallen from that something greater. And all day, every day, that great gulf that exists between the standard of our conscience and the life that we actually live is like a neon light that is blinking in some urban center of the world and it communicates to us, you are fallen, you are fallen, you are fallen, you are fallen. You once were something greater, but you have fallen from that something greater. At one time, man was superior to what he is now, but he has fallen 
from that superior place. Question number two in verse 21, is there an answer for death, an antidote of victory over it? And thankfully there is, and that answer is found in Jesus, who interrupted death's long march through human history. One of the most uninteresting sections of the Bible for some Christians is the reading of genealogies. Hit the genealogy and say, even if you can pronounce all the names and show off, they sometimes can be tedious. But so-and-so begets so-and-so, and he died. And 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 we just think it's like this useless collection of names that have been put together for some kind of family root thing. But what it's a description of is this, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, is emphasizing the uninterrupted march of death through human history. But then on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, there was an interruption in the march. Death had to stop and say, this is something new. This is something I've never encountered before. And just as Adam brought sin and death into the human condition, Jesus brings eternal life into the human condition. And what Peter is doing, or Paul is doing here, is he's rebuking the false teachers in Corinth with a logic that if one man's sin could bring death into the human condition, which none of the false teachers uh, disputed, he then asked, Why then does it seem so unbelievable that one man, Jesus, could bring resurrection and everlasting life into the human condition? And our passage further informs us that not only has Jesus risen from the dead, but that he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 20, we say, what in the world does that mean? He's risen from the dead and first fruits, and what in the world is first fruits? It's Old Testament imagery. And it's speaking of an offering that God required of the children of Israel under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament Mosaic Law. And it's recorded there in Leviticus chapter 22, verses 9 through 14, where the first portion of a harvest was to be offered to the Lord. So you've got this great field that is white unto harvest. And they would take and then harvest just a small corner of that field, make a great sheaf of it, and then they would bring it then to the Lord or to the priest there who would then raise it up before the Lord and wave it to the Lord at the tabernacle and at the, at, uh, later at the temple. And it was communicating, a communication on the part of the offer of thanksgiving to God for not only supplying that corner, that sheaf, but then all of the wheat and the grain that would be harvested after that. Now, it, the date, and I'm going to lose some of you here for about 90 seconds, but try not to be lost related to it. Fair warning. The date prescribed to the first fruit offering in the book of Leviticus is significant. And it was to occur, the word tells us, on the day after the Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is, on the second day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That would have been the 16th day 
of the first month. And so you always have the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. And the Passover, Jesus died on the day of the Passover to fulfill that. And even as the offering was uh, made of, of the sheep and the blood was applied to the doorpost and the lentil of the house of, of those who were walking by faith and applying it to that location under God's instruction, and then the judgment that came into Egypt, it passed over that house. And when Jesus died upon that cross, he didn't just provide us with a covering for our sin, which was the best that an Old Testament sacrifice could do, but he has provided us with the forgiveness of sin. Our sin is washed away. And so Jesus fulfilled that Passover feast. But the very day after the Passover feast, which was one day, it occurred on the 14th, then the first Sabbath, the Saturday on the 15th, That began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then on the following day, the Sunday, the 16th, they were to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. And all of it was a picture, an Old Testament picture of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. That just as this Feast of First Fruits was celebrated on the Sunday after the Passover, so too Jesus was resurrected from the dead on the Sunday following the Passover, the day that he was crucified. You say, what's the point? Here's the point the Holy Spirit was making through the Apostle Paul here, that just as the sheaf of wheat that was offered to God on the Feast of first fruits would be followed by a great harvest, so too Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the guarantee of our resurrection, our victory over death, and our everlasting life. Our resurrection from the dead is Christians. Our victory over death in the future is as sure a historical fact, though future, it is as sure as the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And that's as sure as it can get, my friend. And so when Jesus rose from the dead on that third day, it wasn't just so he could flex his muscles like Popeye and say, I wanted to show you I can conquer death, so goody for me, sorry about all of the rest of you. He managed to find a way to not only conquer death and defeat death, but then to share that victory with you and I. And that's what he did in his death and in his resurrection. Now, one time, Jesus, during his public ministry, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were bitterly opposed to him because of his popularity, they came to him and they said, Teacher, give us a sign. And they were basically asking him to give them a sign for his claim to be the Son of God and God the Son, the Messiah, the promised Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. So that's what they were asking him for. They didn't need any more signs. All over Israel, from top to bottom, left to right, north, south, east, west, the land was filled with signs. The lame were walking, the blind were seeing, the deaf were hearing, the lepers were cleansed of their leprosy. 
People had been raised from the dead. The the gospel had been preached to the poor. All of it in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. They had signs enough to believe in him as the promised Messiah. But Jesus condescends to give them one more sign. He said, it is a wicked and an adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. In the light of the signs you already have, he was saying to them, it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeketh after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the, singular, the sign of Jonah the prophet. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, speaking of his resurrection, that he would die and be buried, but only remain in that condition for three days and three nights, giving them the great sign, the single great sign of his resurrection, just as God had prophesied that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. He would die, yes, but he would be raised before his body saw corruption in Psalm 16, uh, verse 10. Nor will you, speaking of the Father, allow your Holy One, that is Jesus, to see corruption. And so what was Jesus communicating to all of us in this room and the whole wide world? What was he communicating? Jesus was communicating to every one of us, make sure your God has conquered death. Don't trust in any Savior, in any God, in any philosophy, in any philosophy professor, in any person, in any place, in anything, in any anything. Don't trust in any of it if they have not conquered death. Don't follow anyone or anything as a master passion unless it provides a victory for death. And only Jesus in human history does that. And Jesus not only spoke authoritatively. So many can speak authoritatively about death and what happens after. Jesus did something greater Jesus conquered death through his resurrection. And he added death to his key ring. He has the keys of death and hell, the Bible tells us, as he appeared to John in the Revelation. When you have a key, you have authority. When you have a key to a door, you have authority over that door. You have authority over that room. And Jesus is saying, I have reduced death down to a servant. I've defeated that. I have authority over both death and hell. And that's an authority that Jesus alone possesses. Well, that brings us to our final question. And that is, how can I make that antidote, that victory of Jesus mine? And we do it through faith. We do it through faith. Through simple trust. So often it's so goofy about us as human beings. We are so goofy about everlasting life and salvation, the forgiveness of sins. By the time we want, finally want to be saved and forgiven, and we finally want a relationship with God, somehow we're offended when God tells us that we can't have any part 
in earning it. All we can do is receive it. There's a goofy thing about us that somehow believes we can make any salvation sure than it is by adding our effort to it and not realizing that we have made any salvation that we have to add effort to as flawed and as frail as we are. So you sit in a room like this and you say, I'm 25 years old, I'm not flawed and I'm not frail. You wait, buckaroo. We don't want a salvation that's based on something as weak and as tenuous as us. We want a salvation that's based on someone and something far greater than us. And that's a salvation that God has provided through His Son. If you say, listen, in order for you to be saved, here's what you need to do. You've got to take a flight to the Himalayas, put on a pair of shorts, and go up on your knees. A line will form to do it. A line will form for people to do that. You tell them that salvation is a free gift that we receive from God because He has done all the heavy lifting because only He could do all the heavy lifting. And then people wonder about it. It's too good to be true. What's the catch to it? Or it, 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 it hits our pride that we can't add anything to it. So this group of people, they're not any different than you and me. They came to Jesus and they asked him, What do we do? that we may do the works of God. And the idea was, what's the doing we need to do to know we'll have everlasting life? And they come with a yellow pad and a pen, and I mean, they're ready to jot fast as Jesus can tell them. And Jesus answered, and he said to them, this is the work of God, ready. Okay, number one, number five, 374, 473, and just write the whole thing down. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him, speaking of himself, Jesus, whom he has sent. Is that simple? It's that simple. Because Jesus has done all the work. It's a free salvation that is received as a gift. Where a person comes to God, comes to a moment in our lives where we look to God and we say, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner. I have been less than perfect all my life. And I believe that you are so holy a God that but one sin disqualifies me for heaven and for relationship with you. But I also believe that you loved my soul so much even when I didn't care one bit about it for decades, that you sent your Son to die on the cross for my sins and that He is the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sins. And I put my trust in the Savior that you have sent. And when you do that, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life and you'll be born again. And everything becomes brand new.
as a result of that. You receive the forgiveness of sins. You begin a personal relationship with God, the relationship that you've been created for and that you've been searching for all your life. And you begin a relationship with God that will never, ever end. You have everlasting life. Jesus said, and whoever lives, that's every one of us in this room so far, and whosoever lives and believes in me, trusts in me as I've just described, he shall never die. Someone says, I know Christians who have died. Oh, no, you, that's not what you saw. Christians don't die. They do move. This body is not the real me. Your body is not the real you. This is a means of expression for the real who we are inside. And that relationship that we begin with God and the real who we are inside, that is never interrupted by death. It never stops, not even for a nanosecond at the moment of what the world calls death. All that happens is we lay down this tent at some particular point in time, barring the rapture, and then we are further clothed with a new body that is made for eternity and made for heaven. We never cease to exist. The relationship never stops for a moment. God's grace pouring into our life, the consciousness of His love, His presence, all that He's built into our lives in this life. And in this relationship, we never not know it even for a second. All we do is we move in now into a body that is able to express and enjoy that relationship in a way that we've never been able to before. D.L. Moody, one of the great evangelists in American history, he said, someday you'll read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. He said, don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. <laughs> and that is the truth of it. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That is the confidence of every single Christian because of the resurrection of Jesus. It's very important to give some thought to death before it comes. And people don't. And that's why God talks about it in His Word. And that's why people like me talk about it on Resurrection Sunday. We give all kinds of thought to financial planning, to retirement, to vacations, to hobbies, things that can be gone in an instant. And by comparison, how little thought is given to the existence of death. Finding a victor over that death and securing our own salvation. And yet it's something that everyone needs to prepare for because death does come and is coming. And there is only one preparation for death, and that is faith in Jesus because he's the only one who has conquered death. And the beautiful thing about his victory is that he is not only willing, but he is eager to share that victory with you. He cares about you. He cares about what you face. 
He knows what you go through in the fallenness of this world. He pities us, the Bible says, and he understands us and all that we face. And he knows we need this victory and we need this salvation. And he is eager to give it to you this morning. Let's pray. I want to just ask as we're in a spirit of prayer here this morning that if you sit here this morning and you have never ever trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you would like to do that this morning, I ask that you just stand up right now from the seat that you're seated in right now and then to receive the gift that God has for you and knows that you so desperately need. Just stand up right now where it is that you're seated. You say, I want that. I want that from God. I want that relationship. I want that confidence in the face of death. I need that forgiveness. He longs to give it to you today. Just stand right now where you're seated, and then we're going to pray. I'll lead you in a prayer to say to the Lord, and then we will pray for you. Sometimes people can wonder and say, well, why do I have to stand? Why do I have to make it public? It is very, very interesting to realize that when Jesus called people to follow him, he always did publicly. There's no exception to that. He always called them publicly. And Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Right now, he'll do it. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. So that's the need to make the stand this morning for him and publicly confess, I am making Jesus my Savior. Anybody else who wants to stand here this morning in order to receive Jesus into your heart, just go ahead and stand. It's, just, it's a really big living room, and it's God's living room. And he's present, and he's calling you. He knows how to talk to you in a way that you understand. He knows how to tell you this is the truth. It's the end of your journey, your home. He knows how to do that, and he does it. And then when you hear that, you need to respond to the very voice of God in your heart and then stand right now and begin the life that he has for you this morning. So obey that. Listen to that. Go ahead and stand with all of the others who have stood here this morning. Anybody else? Just stand. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? It's your day. It is, this is your day between you and God. It's your day. Don't miss it. Don't miss the day. You go ahead and stand. Anybody else? Just obey God in your heart. That's all. Just obey God in your heart. One more moment. Anybody else? God loves your soul. He values your soul. He loves you. 
has such compassion on you, wants to save you today. Anybody else, anybody else, just stand right now where you're seated. Those of you who are standing, I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. If that prayer represents what you want to say to God, then you just repeat it after me out loud to him. And you're just going to invite God into your heart, but you're the one that has to do that. And then we're going to pray for you. So just repeat after me. God, thank you for loving me. I confess my sin to you this morning. And I ask for your forgiveness as I put my trust in Jesus' death upon the cross for me. I believe that he was buried and rose again on the third day. And I believe that he is the Savior that pleases you. I give you my life this morning. I ask you to take my life and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make it yours and use it for your glory for the rest of this life and all of the life to come. Thank you for saving me this morning. Thank you for caring. And thank you for making it a free gift. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to pray for you. Lord, we thank you for each one of these men and women that you know so well and that you love so much. Lord, you were around when they... First time they skinned their knee when they were trying to learn to roller skate or to ride a bike. First time they ever lost a tooth. The first time they ever had their heart broken in life. You're with them now and all that they're facing in life. And you've been with them just faithful through all of the time in order to bring them to this day so that this could happen in their life. And we thank you and we give you praise for your grace and your faithfulness to them. We pray that you baptize them with your Holy Spirit right where they stand. We pray that you give them an insatiable love for your word and then couple it, Lord, with great revelation from your Holy Spirit to open it up to them. And we pray that they would enjoy the deepest relationship with you that a person can possibly experience this side of heaven. Bless them. Keep them, Lord. We thank you for allowing us to be a part of their day. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise